Welcome back to the Resurrection Church Podcast. This is another episode of our weekly Bible reading plan. We are on week 48, that's days 3.30 to 3.36 of the Every Day with Jesus plan, nearing the end of this reading through the Bible track that we've been on. And we'll be discussing Ezekiel 30 through 43, and then 1st and 2nd Peter. Unfortunately, with holiday things going on over Thanksgiving with some more sickness, I am just here by myself again. So this will be another briefer episode as I just fill in the gaps of our Bible reading. And Lord willing, AJ and Matthew will join me for week 49 of the Bible reading podcast. We've got to figure out a way to keep AJ healthy and uh, for Matthew and I to coordinate our schedules on these weird weeks, but we may be running out of time to figure that out. But hopefully, as we round out the year, the, the other guys will be able to join me as we finish up our Bible reading plan. I hope that you had a great Thanksgiving filled with gratitude and reflections on the Lord's kindness over the years. Um, We had a great time, Kate and I, as we had a little bit of a different year, but filled with Thanksgiving and um, a a good time with our church family on Tuesday at our evening of thanks. It was encouraging to hear testimonies of God's kindness to people. Uh, It was great to eat a good amount of pumpkin pie. I ate so much pumpkin pie that I got a headache from all of the sugar in it, but it was an enjoyable time nonetheless. Let's jump into our Bible reading in Ezekiel 30 to 43. These chapters open up again with more words of judgment, especially against Egypt and Assyria. Uh, there's a lament for Pharaoh in chapter 32 that's pretty pretty long in a description of Egypt in Sheol, this place of the dead, as it gets halfway through the chapter. And then once again, Ezekiel is appointed as Israel's watchman. He's given this responsibility to give warnings of judgment, and this comes with a steep price. So if Ezekiel fails to give warning of judgment, um, he is responsible for the outcome of the circumstance. But if he does give warning of judgment and people refuse to listen, he is not culpable for their, for their failure to comply with the word of the Lord. One of the most significant chapters in our reading this week is chapter 34, where the shepherds of Israel are indicted for their failure to care for the flock of God, to care for the people of God. The shepherd flock analogy is used throughout the Bible, but here in particular, Israel, God's people, is pictured as his flock, his flock of sheep. And the Lord, of course, is the great shepherd. We think of Psalm 23 and instances like this. But the great shepherd appoints shepherds over his people, under shepherds, we might say. And these shepherds are supposed to feed the flock. They're supposed to care for God's people. But instead, these shepherds have been feeding themselves, and and they've been doing so to the detriment of the flock. So there's this indictment in verse 3. You eat the fat, wear the wool, and the but- and butcher the fatted animals, but you do not tend the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, banded the- bandaged the in- 
injured, brought back the strays, or sought the lost. Instead, you ruled them with violence and cruelty. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. They became food for all the wild animals when they were scattered. My flock went astray on all the mountains and every high hill. My flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth, and there was no one searching or seeking for them. So for this reason, the Lord is against the shepherds. He's not on their side because they aren't on his side. The Lord is moved with compassion for his people because he sees them as a flock without a shepherd, a flock scattered across the world, um, a flock being led to idolatry instead of to the worship of God. So he is going to shepherd them. He's going to tend the flock. He'll seek the lost, bring back the strays, bandage the injured, strengthen the weak, but he'll destroy the fat and the strong. He'll shepherd them with justice. And the way that he's going to do this is by saving the flock and establishing over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will shepherd them. This, of course, is a reference to the Davidic covenant where someone from the line of David will be the shepherd king over Israel. And the Lord says that this is how he's going to bring his flock together again. This is how he'll care for them. He'll establish someone from the line of David that he refers to here is my servant David as a prince among them. More than that, the Lord is going to make a covenant with them. He calls it a covenant of peace. This is probably a reference to what Jeremiah calls the new covenant. These are probably the same thing. But the Lord will break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the power of those who enslave them. And then he once again calls them his people, uh, his flock, the human flock of his pasture. And of course, this brings to mind the fulfillment of this prophecy in Jesus, particularly recorded in Matthew 9. Um, At the end of that chapter, Jesus is going to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness. So he's doing what the shepherds of Israel weren't doing, and he's going out to all of the places where God's people have been scattered. And then in Matthew 9, 36, it says, When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them, because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. And then Jesus, this shepherd, sends his disciples out into the harvest to gather up the flock to care for them. And then, of course, this imagery is pictured in other places in the New Testament. In Peter, for instance, which we'll talk about later, he he refers to Jesus as that great shepherd. So we look at this picture, and what initially looks like is only Israel, who will become the human flock of God's pasture, expands to include all people who will respond favorably to the shepherd, Jesus. There's one more brief um, prophecy here against Edom in chapter 35, but then in chapter 36 and following, there's this depiction of the restoration of Israel's land and people. It especially in chapter 36, resonates with the language of the Noahic covenant where God is working to 
restore his creation, not just the people in it. So we sometimes talk about three facets of the sin problem. There's a personal broken relationship with God. There's a relational or social dynamic where humans are now at odds with each other. And then there's an infiltration of sin into the very earth, into the very cosmos, that animals and plant kingdoms, in the earth itself. And this restoration of the mountains and the land relates to that cosmic aspect of the sin problem. Then, of course, as the chapter goes on, it talks about the restoration of the people pictured very vividly in chapter 37 in the vision of the Valley of the Dry Bones, where there's this valley of bones, and these are probably the skeletons of individuals in Israel who have been killed during the siege by Babylon, when Babylon comes and takes over Israel. These individuals had been killed during that exile as an act of God's judgment. And now God uh, shows Ezekiel this vision where these bones are coming to life. They take on flesh again. God puts his breath in them. The graves open up and these individuals rise from the dead. It's this picture of resurrection and restoration followed by this note about the reunification of Israel. So you have to remember that there's the northern and southern kingdom. These lands have split. Um, They are not under God's one Davidic king. But in Ezekiel 37, 22, there's this promise that God will make them one nation on the mountains of Israel and one king will rule over them. They will be my people. I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them. There will be one shepherd for all of them. Um, More than that, they'll follow my ordinances and keep my statutes and obey them. And then once again, this covenant of peace or the permanent covenant is referenced once again. And again, upon first reading, it seems that this promise is only for national Israel. But then as you get into the book of Acts, as this spirit that brings life comes upon the Gentiles as well, the apostles recognize uh, these promises are bigger than we first anticipated, and God is doing a work that's more surprising and uh, spectacular than we would have imagined. Then especially as we get into the other New Testament writings, we start to see that all who are united in Christ, this servant king, this prince over Israel— belong, in a sense, to Israel as well. So there's this worldwide restoration and a reunification under the one king of Israel that's greater than ever could have been imagined. And then we have um, some more prophecies against those who are set against the Lord. Uh, The Lord is going to make himself known Uh, Over and over again, there's this refrain that then they will know that I am the Lord. And this reminds us, of course, of the declarations at the first redemption of Israel in Exodus, where God performs many signs through Moses. There are these plagues that are given out so that people will know that the Lord is God. And then the result of this in chapter 39 verse 21, is that God will display his glory among the nations. And again, everyone will know that the Lord is God. He'll be jealous for his holy name. Those who have committed unfaithfulness to him will feel remorse for this, and he'll demonstrate his holiness through them in the sight of many nations. So once again, they're to be a light to the nations, intended to draw those nations into God, to be um, in covenant participation with him. 
And then there's this vision of the new temple. To be honest, this is a little bit challenging for me to know what to do with because I did not look it up at all. But I I just have an inclination that probably this is a vision that depicts the whole earth becoming God's temple. And then God's glory will return from the east in chapter 43, where the glory of the Lord fills the temple. And perhaps that's probably another way of saying that the glory of the Lord fills the earth or something like that. Um, it's I'm sure debated. I am not familiar enough with Ezekiel to be able to give a good articulation of this section. But that brings us to the end of our Ezekiel reading um, as we prepare to go into another week wrapping up this book. We turn our attention now to First and Second Peter. I'm always struck by how um, confusing First and Second Peter can really be. In, in his letters, Peter references Paul's writings and says that they're complicated and confusing, but I think we could say the same thing about First and Second Peter. I would point you to Steve Aldridge um, as the guy you should probably direct any of your First and Second Peter questions to. He, he is very knowledgeable about these books and Jude that we'll be encountering later. Um, he probably has the answer. But Peter reminds people about the supreme sacrifice of Christ and the living hope that we have in him, even though we are experiencing suffering. So particularly in 1 Peter 1, Peter's calling his readers to live holy lives while participating in the sufferings of Christ, knowing of the glory that would be to follow. Um, This is how we ought to live. Um, We ought to live with pure hearts, loving one another, embracing the suffering that comes and walking in the way of Christ, knowing that more glory will follow, knowing that suffering isn't the final word, just as it wasn't for Christ. He calls people to embody the values of Christ, to rid themselves of sin, and instead to feast on the on the word and to grow up into salvation. Um, we're to become living stones who are like Jesus. Um, we are not supposed to stumble over Jesus. Instead, of, instead we're supposed to grow into him, um, to ground ourselves on the cornerstone as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, who are proclaiming the praises of God. Um, it's interesting that Peter uses all of this terminology that's found so frequently in the Old Testament to talk about Israel, and now he uses it to talk about all of God's people. He points out in 2.10 that once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So then we're supposed to conduct ourselves as those who are God's people. Um, We're supposed to submit to God, to work um, for his glory on the day that he visits. And in so doing, we're supposed to live quiet lives. We're supposed to honor the authorities that are over us. We're supposed to love the brothers and sisters, fear God, honor the emperor. We're supposed to work out our obedience to Christ in whatever situation we find ourselves, um, knowing that the shepherd and overseer of our souls judges justly, and um, we need to imitate his lifestyle. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, 
but entrusted himself to God. And, and that's how we ought to live as well. There are instructions for husbands and wives. I think as a husband in particular, this instruction to live with your wives in an understanding way so that your prayers will not be hindered is particularly challenging. And I don't know the precise way that that works out, but Peter makes a connection between not treating our wives well and God um, not responding favorably to our prayers, not listening to our prayers. Um, And then there are instructions for the life of the community to be like-minded and sympathetic, loving one another. This instruction to love shows up over and over again. Um, And then there's a return to embracing suffering, um, to not uh, suffer for doing evil, but be willing to suffer for doing good. So don't do anything evil that would bring suffering upon you. Instead, live like Christ, and if you encounter suffering, embrace that as suffering with and for Christ. It's probably correct to say that sometimes Christians are suffering, and they are suffering not because they are living like Jesus, but because they're living in the way that they want to live, and um, then they say that it's because they're living like Jesus that they are suffering. Probably Christians, especially in a country like ours, have an inclination to say anytime someone does something to them that they don't like, it's because they're a Christian. But the reality might be that some of the pushback they get in life or the hardship they face have nothing to do with them being a Christian. It has everything to do with them failing to live as Christ would live. So we have to be careful what we call persecution or suffering for Christ. Sometimes we can attach Christ's name to things that he never wanted it to attach to be attached to, and, and then we get upset and say that we're being persecuted um, for being Christians when really we're not. So we should always be careful about that. Um, and then Peter continues on in talking about suffering to draw attention to baptism and uh, the pledge that it is of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ um, and a recognition that Jesus now is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. So again, he goes in chapter 4 into this motif or this theme of suffering, Um, suffering through hardship, suffering as we put sin to death in our lives, preparing to stand before the judgment of God. This theme of suffering continues all the way through the end of the chapter. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 12, Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you, as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. So this theme of suffering shows up over and over and over again, and that's really challenging for those of us who are generally pretty comfortable in life. We aren't experiencing a ton of hardship and suffering like so many Christians have before. So then when it does come, if you're like me, you're probably inclined to complain about it instead of receiving it with joy. But we're called as Christians to suffer with joy so that we can also have joy when Christ returns in glory. Towards the conclusion of the letter, Peter exhorts the elders of the assembly to shepherd God's flock among them. Um, And all of this resonates with Ezekiel's instructions 
um, or prophetic critique of Israel's shepherds, and this is a good word for pastors of churches as they consider how they shepherd the flock of God today. Then towards the end, there's this encouraging benediction that Peter gives to God or the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. That is probably a good benediction for suffering Christians to remember, to memorize, and to recite as they go through suffering, knowing that we suffer for a little while, but it's only permitted by the God of grace, and it's for the eternal glory of Christ. Second Peter is a little bit of a shorter letter and uh, focuses a little bit more on coming judgment. He calls people to remain true in the faith, um, to remain committed to the word and the teaching they had, to reject the false teachers, and to live in light of the coming day of the Lord. Many false teachers were saying that the day of the Lord would never come, that Christ would never return. They would say things like, where is his coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. I think that's probably something that's been expressed in our modern day. Uh, Christians have been waiting for Jesus to come back for 2,000 years, and it hasn't happened yet. But Peter said they deliberately overlook this. Um, that God has a creating and judging word, and that God is always true to his word. And he points out that any delay that we might sense is not truly a delay, uh, but instead it's an expression of God's patience because he doesn't want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So it's like God is waiting this uh, final judgment. He's, He's waiting to enact it, to give people more opportunity to repent and come to faith and um, to be prepared for the return of the Lord. So it's a delay, perhaps, but not because the Lord is failing to do what he promised. Instead, he's being even more gracious than what has been promised by giving people additional time to respond appropriately to Christ and the message of the gospel. But what are Christians to do while we wait for this day of the Lord? Well, at the end of the chapter, he says, While you wait for these things, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in his sight at peace. Um, So we're supposed to live holy lives. They're supposed to be at peace with one another. Um, Even as we know that there are individuals who will lead us astray, who false teachers who teach the opposite of what Christ teaches. Instead, as he ends the letter, we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Well, this brings us to the end of week 48 of our Bible reading plan. I want to remind you about our upcoming Christmas event called The Lord of the Rings and the Hope of Christmas. This event will take place on December 16th at 7 o'clock p.m. You can join us here for a free evening of Lord of the Rings trivia, treats, prizes, a presentation of the hope of Christmas, and its connection to the Lord of the Rings. I am really looking forward to this event, and I hope that you'll be able to join us there on December 16th at 7 p.m. as we celebrate the hope of Christmas through the Lord of the Rings.
This podcast is a ministry of Resurrection Church in Burnsville, Minnesota. You can learn more at resurrectionmn.org.